If you'll turn now with me to pages 8 and 9 of the bulletin or, and or your, your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for that special offering of music and the message that it's your work, not ours. It's your voice, not ours, that we listen for. And we pray that once again this morning, as we turn to your word, we would hear and meet with the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And we pray in his name. Amen. Peter is beginning to apply to uh, with us and for us the gospel and the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with its implications. And he uses the same pattern as the Apostle Paul. We read of this in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3 where he says that we are to put off the old and put on the new. And we see here in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, rid yourselves, put off all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Put off the old man. Put off the old ways, the old ways of thinking and acting. And then, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So having put off malice and envy and the rest, now the goal of our life is to crave, is to seek, is to want spiritual food. This is the antidote to immaturity. And we saw last week that immaturity is a big problem, certainly for Peter and certainly in the church. People coming to know Christ, being born again, and then stopping in their growth and not seeking and desiring to mature and to move on. Here in the, in the uh, imperative in verse 2 is that we are to be like newborn babies. And the one thing that the newborn baby wants above all else, even above warmth, is food. That's what you should want. You should want to grow spiritually through the food of the Word of God, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. But how to do that? This week we turn to that this morning. You see in the outline, Peter is trying to get people to love one another. You notice that's back up in verse 22. And now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And then he begins with the word for in verse 23 to explain about that. You can't do this unless you draw, however, on a supernatural power. We've said that. People are not in themselves lovable. Even newborn babies, though they're cute for a little while, soon exhaust our patience. And if we don't draw upon some other reservoirs, we will simply... Stop to love them. 
We will, we will grow weary and tired on the effort of it. But Peter says you don't have to grow tired of it and weary of it without the strength of the Lord behind you. For you have been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, something that could wear out, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of Christ. So the Christian life is a journey and an adventure. It is not a static thing. We need to keep moving in the, in, in the Christian life. We're all at different levels. We're all in different ways, mature and immature at the same time. But in terms of what the Lord wants of us, well, we are to rid ourselves of all malice and deceit, and we are like newborn babies to crave pure spiritual milk. Why should we be growing as Christians? It's, it's commanded. That should be enough of an answer, but let, let's talk about that for a moment. Just like babies, growth in the Christian life is expected. As Peter surely looked back upon his own life and saw the lack of maturity at times, he saw the frustration that he caused the Savior and the other disciples by his own foolishness. We look back on our immaturity and our years of of, uh, folly, and we trust we've laid them aside, that they are no longer true of us. And yet, We struggle sometimes, A, to be forgiven or to sense of forgiveness for those foolish things, and B, to put them truly behind us. Because you are infants, Peter says, you need to grow up. You need to yearn to grow. Now, this is regardless of the size of the, uh, of the individual and, you know, how, what our age is. As Christians, we, when we're born again, we all start over. We all begin again. We are all characterized by immaturity. Peter confessed Christ as the living God in Matthew 16. But it wasn't until this point in his life, after the death and resurrection of Christ, after his meeting him, after the resurrection, after the book of Acts, after his vision with Cornelius, after he served the Lord in various capacities, that he now begins to come to maturity. He had new birth back in the gospel times, but it was a long time thereafter before he got to maturity. So among other things that we say about this is it's not, an, for most people, an overnight event. Sanctification is a process. It takes time. The important thing is not how long it's taking. The important thing is that we keep moving, that we keep growing, that we keep seeking him. Because we are infants, we must acknowledge this, when we first come to know Christ, we need to grow up. Now, Christian truth, as I say here, is more complicated than secular thought. Native intelligence does not mean that you don't start out with Christianity as an infant. You may be at the head of your class intellectually, but Christianity is more than just intellect. It's a lot more complicated It involves the will, it involves emotion, it involves experience, and none of these things can be gotten simply by being smart or being good in school. You don't start out with Christianity. Native intelligence does not mean that you don't start out with Christianity as an infant, and most Christians are spiritual babies. Just a fact. Most of us are immature We are unstable, we are shallow, we are easily discouraged. We are self-centered, we interrupt, we are easily defended, easily offended. We have short attention spans, discipline is almost unknown among us, we are gullible, we don't know how little that we know. 
This is true. Widespread across the Christian church. Widespread among evangelical Christians. Everyone starts off as a kid. Want to grow. And you see the immaturity is explained by the, by the fact that we often are acting like babies, infants, and immature. But it is, if you look more closely into this verse 2, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up. The Lord gives the growth. Here, this, is, this growing up phrase is in the passive voice. And it reminds us of 1 Corinthians 3 where it says God is the one who gives the increase. So as we talk about this exhortation to crave spiritual milk, let's not forget that God is behind the process. He is growing us up. He will use adversity and good times. He will use a a marvelous array of, of methods to get us to mature. He's working on us all right now toward that end. Now, what should we be growing into? Pastors? Missionaries? Uh, Bible scholars? No, that's not what the Bible holds up as uh, the paragon of maturity. Instead, the paragon of maturity is Christ. Only he had the perfect blend of patience and impatience. Aiming for purity as we are, but how do we evaluate it? It is not an abstraction. We look at Jesus, the perfect, the mature, and the fullness of Christ. Look at him for a moment with me there in that last bullet on page 8. See the virtues that are combined. Tenderness without weakness. Strength without harshness. Humility without a lack of self-confidence. Holiness and approachability. Power without insensitivity. Passion without prejudice. Integrity without rigidity. Moral glory, absolute beauty, never a false word, never a misstep. That's the goal. The goal is to find uh, the, the portrait of Christ in the scriptures as we see him displayed throughout and to grow up into him. Now, it may be helpful from time to time to learn from another Christian one attribute or another and to appreciate certain things about them and to, and to, in a sense, copy them. But the real goal of Christian maturity is not uh, a, what any one person could ever achieve. What we are seeking to do is be like Christ. Christ-likeness. His fullness displayed in us. Never perfectly, but do others see Christ in us? Or do they just see a know-it-all or a holier-than-thou? Why is it that so many people, when they learn that we're Christians, shrink back and say, well, you must now think you're better than everybody else? That's because oftentimes Christians portray the image that they are better than everybody else. But Jesus didn't. People were attracted to him because he, he didn't portray himself as better than anyone else. In fact, the Pharisees said, you act like you're worse than everyone else. Or at least worse than us. So Pharisaism is not the goal. We don't want to grow up into just simply that form of religious maturity. 
The goal that we are to have is not grandma or some pastor or missionary. The goal is Christ. I want to be like him. Grow up in your salvation. And who is responsible for that? Jesus. Who is the one who accomplished it so marvelously? Christ. Grow up in your salvation, in your Christ-likeness. You have imperishable seed. Something has come into you, the Holy Spirit. You have his spiritual DNA. You have his divine nature unfolding in you until you reach the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are also, Peter says later, partakers of the divine nature. What he means is that his spirit has been planted within us. So the DNA of Christ, if we can say it this way, is already in us. We need to grow up into it. Christ-likeness in its seed form, in an imperishable seed, has been planted within us. And so now our goal is to grow up and to mature and to let that plant flourish within us. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And there's this, this old man, new man thing that Paul writes about. Whereas Christ grows up in me and becomes that new man in and through me, I become attractive. Not because of my own personal gifts, but because of my Christ-like gifts. What you see in others that you're attracted to is is their Christ-likeness. So the application, love one another, be honest. This This is not possible without an imperishable seed. The Bible always assumes that you are born again or you can't do it. Christianity is not a set of moral principles to be adopted only. It is a radical transformation from the inside out. Let me say that again. It is not Christianity. What the world thinks is that it's a set of do's and don'ts, of Ten Commandments, of rules and regulations. No, it's a transformation that begins inwardly. It starts with a new birth and the seed that's planted within us, and it grows up into Christ-likeness. Help cannot come to us in a piecemeal way. It must be rebuilding from the ground up a new heart, a new spiritual DNA. And that's what we have. So therefore, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, in your Christ-likenesses, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You have the Spirit within you. You have the new birth You have tasted that he is good. Now look at that and focus on that. Don't copy other people, except insofar as a sort of surface appreciation for their gifts and their ability to manifest Christ. Be who God has made you to be and grow up into him. Let him express himself through you. But how do we grow? Well, there are at least three things in this passage. First of all, the way of acceptance. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Purification has come as a result of obedience. And faith is partly just trusting God, but it's also obeying God when we don't understand Obedience to a standard outside of ourselves to which we must submit. Not my will, but thy will be done. How do we see this? Well, we see it in God's law. 
We're called to forgive, to be radically generous, to not twist the truth, etc. You can't do that without obeying. And also in God's evaluation of you. You are wicked, but because he loved you, you are loved and accepted more than you ever thought possible. You are not junk. Accept what he says about your sin and how much you are loved. So on the one hand, there is the law. And the law says, these are the standards, you must keep them. And although only Christ kept them perfectly, they are nevertheless, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the ways that you and I express our love for the Lord, one of the ways that we accept him, is to do what he says. Especially when we don't want to. Especially when it seems counterintuitive. Especially when there's some cost involved. Telling the truth. Standing for, standing for what is right. Etc. So on the one hand there is the law. We are to forgive because we have been forgiven. We are to be generous because he has been generous with us. We are to be truthful because he is the way and the truth and the life. And we can't do this without obeying. Because we don't always feel like forgiving. And we don't always feel like being radically generous. And we don't always feel like telling the truth. There comes a time in the Christian's life, if they are to mature, when they have to simply obey. Now this was true as you grew up as a child. Your parents made impossible impositions on you, right? They asked things that were just too hard. In bed by 9 o'clock? No way. I couldn't possibly do that. Especially in the summertime when it's still light. Eating your vegetables? No way. I don't like them. I want to go play. I want to go do something else. On and on and on. We, we resist it. But the other side of this is to hear God's evaluation of you. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another, the purification process has begun within you. God has reevaluating you. You are wicked, and you see the wickedness now more fully than you ever did before, because the more the light of Christ shines, the more the dirt of sin and self is revealed. You see that now, and you are wicked, but because he loved you, you are more loved and accepted than you ever thought possible. So it's true that we have standards to keep, and when we don't keep them and Christ kept them for us, it's also true that we have love, loving evaluation and, and acceptance of us that is amazing. Now let me theorize with you a moment. In the old days, when people dressed up to go to church more than they do now. I don't know the motivation for that. I wasn't there and I didn't make those decisions. But one of the reasons to dress up and go to church now when you come is not to be sanctimonious or show off in any way, but to say, I've been changed. I have a new suit of clothes. The righteousness that was mine has been filthy rags. And 
As we said this morning in 2 Corinthians 5, He made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, I was a slave who needed to be bought back, and he bought me back, and now he treats me as a son. And I need to be reminded of that, so I have Sunday clothes. I think it's a great concept, if understood that way. Of course not in terms of impressing other people. But if you lay aside something for Sunday that you wear, especially for that, it will tend to remind you, hopefully, that you're new and born again. And that you have a new standing with him. You are no longer a slave, unworthy and unwilling. But you are now a child of the king with an eternal inheritance and a new standing with him. He has welcomed you back. What do they do with the prodigal son, the younger son, when he comes home? They take off his old pig-stained clothes and they put on a new robe for him. Now, if that helps you, wear what you want. But let it remind you of the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. And that's also the way of acceptance. You have to accept not only his law and submit to it, you also have to submit to his evaluation of you. And his evaluation of you is usually higher than it is of yourself because you and I know who we are and what we've done and what we're capable of. And we need to be reminded of his legal evaluation of us. We have been set free. We have been bought back. We have been redeemed. We have been given a new inheritance, a new righteousness, a new standing. We are joint heirs with Christ. We have a heavenly reward awaiting us. And we have been adopted into the family of the living God. Don't forget that. That's the other side of Calvary. When the prodigal son came home, he got a new robe. He wasn't sent to the field with the older brother. He wasn't set to, set to the end of the table with the servants. He was brought to the fore. And so it is in, the, in, the, in Christianity. The legal truth is that we have been accepted in Christ. And now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Now, of course, there's more to it than just purifying yourself. It's Christ who has purified us. But the, the process has, been, has begun. Now we want to step in the way of nourishment. Take it in. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. And I break this down a little bit in a humble illustration of eating food. First of all, we have to cut the food up, right? We have to study the Bible. Break the Bible open. This doesn't happen magically. And it doesn't happen just by listening to other people talk about the Bible. It means taking the Bible yourself and feeding yourself. Yourself with your own hands. And when you feed yourself, the first thing you have to do with food is cut it up so that it's in a, in a, in, in a format that your body can ingest. Study the Bible. Open it. Secondly, taste it and chew it. That is, turn it over on the palate of your heart. We read the Bible, and many parts of it are plain, but it needs to sink in. When we eat, we chew, and we dissolve the food. And over a period of seconds or minutes, the food is ingested. 
take the Bible, cut it up, read it, and think about it. Pray over it. Meditate on it. Thirdly, swallow it. Digest it. Apply it. Make it part of the deep structures of your psyche and your life. That's the purpose of it. Not just so that we say, well, I read my Bible today. I was a good boy, a good girl. But to take the Bible and break it into meaningful portions, take it into ourself and pray over it and be nourished by it, and take on its way of thinking, that is a tremendous thing. How do you grow? You grow, first of all, by acceptance of God's law and God's evaluation of you. Secondly, by nourishing, by taking to yourself the food, which is the Word of God. And finally, by the way of exchanging. You cannot grow on your own. You need relationships. You need fellowship. Loners do not grow much. One of the ways to stunt growth is to withdraw. Withdraw from God. Withdraw from others. Seclude yourself from relationships. The Bible mentions always the work of God in the context of relationships. Now, there are a lot of reasons to withdraw. People can be mean and unpleasant. And, uh, you know, we like ourselves best. And so we just want to be alone. At least somebody will agree with us if we do that. It makes a certain amount of sense, except it's just wrong. Obeying the truth so that you have sinned, so that, so that, in order that, we obey the truth in order that our relationships improve. That you love your brothers and you love one another deeply and from the heart, not just in a surface way. You cannot grow on your own. You need relationships, fellowship. You're part of a body with lots of mutual dependence. Every scriptural image of the church is of multiple parts connected to one another. The three most prominent in the New Testament are the church as the body of Christ, with him as the head, of course, all parts being connected. Church as the family of God in Ephesians 2, with him as the head, father, and the parts all connected like family, mother, father, mother, sister, brother, grandma, grandpa, cousins. And the church as a building with Jesus as the cornerstone, with all of the stones touching each other and interconnected one way or another. It's never the church is an island. The church is a molecule. The church is an isolated entity of any kind. So what motivates all this? Verse 3. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Lord indeed is good. His goodness is His grace. You are saved not because of your good deeds, but because of what he did for you on the cross. That much we understand, right? And he has been so good to us. Your experience of this grace can increase. Not because you hope he will be good to you, but because you have seen that he is good to you. If you have tasted and seen that he is good, then you will want more of him. Right? Of course. Those times which we have shared with the Lord are too few, and we want more of them. 
Our growth in him is, is, is too halting. We want more of it. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. And you who are Christians have tasted and seen that he is good. And that alone is a motivation to be more like him. To grow up in Christ. To mature. So to put away that which hinders, Paul says. And to press on to the upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. How do we do it? By the way of acceptance, where we accept his word and we submit to it, and we accept what he says about us and he re- as he rehabilitates us. The way of nourishment through the scripture and study of the scripture and application of it down deeply into our lives. And then the expression of this in the love of others. It, re- it was never meant to be an isolated gift, this salvation. It's always meant to be used in community, in connection with others. You can't be a lone ranger and be the Christian. You can't simply be a hermit and be isolated in in a spiritual um, bachelor. You have to be connected. The head of the body, the father of the family, the cornerstone of the building... These things are clear. And it's also clear that we want this. He's placed a taste for it in our mouths. He's given us a desire to know him more. And there's nothing in the way save Satan. He wants you to grow. God does. You want to grow. So let's begin. Shall we pray? Forgive us, Lord, for being content with whatever state we're in and and, uh, immaturity and foolishness. Forgive us for saying, well, that's just the way I am and I can't change. Forgive us for not seeing the high calling you give us in Christ to be more like him. For those who speak too much, to speak less and listen. For those who listen too much, to speak of them, their mind and their heart. And all together that we may love one another in him. Thank you for this high calling and for opening our eyes to it. And thank you for pushing Peter through it in his life. As he resisted you, it seems, every step of the way. For it gives us hope to know that since you did it for him, you can also do it for us. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name.